Okay. Scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and verses 26 to 31. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, where you are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we're launching a uh, new sermon series that will take us through January and most of February on gender in the gospel. And you may be asking, why would we do this? Um, a couple of reasons. One is that this is a universal issue. This is something that gender is, is, an, is something that every person has to navigate through and ask the questions, how do I fit? This hits every person at some point in their life, whether or not you like or don't like the gender norms of 21st century American culture. It's something everybody navigates, number one. The second is that it's such a difficult issue. Um, there are so many questions going on right now in this cultural moment in our country. And let me just kind of give you a peppering of some of these that we're going to address over the next several weeks. But I want you to just get a scope of how big this is. Uh, so what about the new terms? What is cisgender? What's gender fluid? What's gender non-binary? What's intersex mean? What does the, uh, the title MX mean? Um, why is it so hard to say that men and women are different. What does that mean? What do I do when my child says they don't feel like the sex that's on their birth certificate? What is gender dysphoria? And me, or even more importantly, can the church handle my gender dysphoria? What's wrong with cross-dressing? 
Is gender just a social construct? What about intersex? What is unique about being a man anymore or a woman anymore? If I feel like a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body, should I transition? Why do I feel embarrassed to say that women are different from men or men are different from women? How do I respond to a woman pastor? Is that sinful? Is that progress? Is God wild at heart? We're going to ask all these questions and, and more. Um, gender is it's, it's all over the news. It's such a hot topic, but I find it's such a difficult topic. And one, sadly, one of the places we are last to talk about this is in the church. This is one of the last places we talk about it, and that's why we're doing this series. A uh, couple of caveats about this. First is, um, hang in for the entire series. Hang, hang in. Uh, one of the problems of our current cultural moment is that nobody listens to anybody else that they disagree with. This is one of the, the most rampant things we've received from being a social media-saturated uh, culture right now, is that people get on social media and shout at each other. There's no space for discourse, for conversation. There's no place for, um, for people to disagree. And you may disagree strongly even with things that I say. That's okay. That's okay. You can be a member of Christ the King Presbyterian Church and disagree with things that come out of this pulpit. In fact, one of my hopeful, hope, what I really hope for out of this is that we become more and more a community that knows how to agree to disagree and also knows how to disagree in ways that are agreeable. Does that make sense? That we actually learn peaceful ways of discussing hard things. Um, Second uh, kind of caveat qualification for this, the things I'm about to talk about over the next seven weeks are third-tier issues in the Christian world. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, and we always expect and know there are people among us who would not say, hey, yes, I am one of the team, right? Uh, I I just want to tell you, this is not central to Christianity. This is actually a third tier. First tier is, and this is what you need to be thinking about, is, is Jesus who he says he is. is. Is he the real person who lived, died, resurrected from the dead, and is the Savior of sinners? That's central. That's what it's all about. Second-tier issues are things like, um, what is the authority of Scripture, and how do we understand what that means? Third-tier are these kind of things that Christians debate and, and in many cases disagree on, and yet, like, this is not the central point. And so if, if you're here and you're like, uh, I'm not, not a Christian, don't evaluate Christianity based on gender. Now, that, that may feel really central in this cultural moment, but it is, it, it's really not. And if, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then who cares what Christians think about gender? It doesn't matter because that's the central point, okay? Um, so you may, just may still be asking, but, uh, this is potentially divisive, um, Somebody here is going to be upset, so why are we talking about this? And that's a good question, and um, that's, that's a really, you're not alone if you worry about that. So here, here's my, here are the goals for this series. Okay, number one, grace. Grace. Every person in this room has to navigate gender in this culture, and, and it's hard, and it's not just hard for middle schoolers, right? So like, 
we need to be a community that knows how to love people who are struggling with gender inside our church, outside our church. Second is truth. Um, we need to be thoughtful. We want to be thoughtful about how we understand uh, this issue, how we understand what the Bible teaches, how we understand our culture, how we live these things out as a community together, and we want to be informed by God's Word. We want that to be central and submissive to it. And finally, unity. I hope that there grows out of this series not a uniformity, but a gracious unity that characterizes our church. So that's, that's, where we're, that's, that's the purpose of this. So where do we start? Where do we start? Now, now what happens normally if you open up a conversation about gender at all, we start with ourselves. We start with the place we know best. We start with my experience of what it's like to be a gendered person in this body. Um, we start with what it's like to be a person who experiences discomfort with the gender on my birth certificate in the body that you have. We start with me. And that's not a, a bad place to start, but if we start there, we actually end up missing some things. So I, I think that we're going to, I want to start at a completely different spot. I, I want to start with God. I want to start with, with God. And why, why start there? I mean, because biblically speaking, we need a theology of gender. A the, theology means study of God or word from God, word about God. And right now, we could really use um, a word from God in this area. Here's what I find about me, and I think it's true about you. I'm pretty fickle. I'm a pretty fickle person. I'm pretty changeable. We as a culture are pretty fickle and changeable. And so in this place, we need a word from the God who is unchanging, who is creator and sustainer and savior and designer, who's, who's not changing and who can speak into what it is that he's given us in these bodies and how we experience that. Um, so here's what we're going to learn from, about, from God in this chapter about gender today. Three things, really briefly. First, gender is real. Second, it's not just biology. And third, it's important, but it's not the most important. So let's look at these together. Um, I'm going to break these down. First, gender is real. Now, now here, here's what I want you to see. There is gender at creation before there are people. There's gender at creation before people. There's, there's already language in Genesis 1 that's gendered language before the creation of the first man and the first woman. Already in verse 5, you see this? God's gendered language to describe God. Verse 5, his. Verse 27, he, his. This language, it already begins with God using gendered language for God. And what do we do with that? I know that this is hard. This is a hard thing to talk about. Uh, gendered language for God has been confusing and problematic to lots of people. And so we could, as many people have done before us, go, well, okay, this is patriarchal language. The Bible was written in a patriarchal time by men, four men. It's probably these people visualizing a God who is male, and that's where this comes from. Um, and I suppose that if you're Jewish, you could do that. But here's the thing. You stepped into a Christian church this morning. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. But like, um, 
We have a, a harder time with this because not only do we have gendered language in the beginning, the first chapter, but we have Jesus who comes in the flesh with a male body, with male parts. And, and, and that's, that's a challenge. Um, there's no conspiracy theories around Jesus' gender. Nobody thinks, was he really a guy? No, no, that, that's not been ever debated. And let me just push this a couple steps further. Um, one of the most kind of missed doctrines in the modern Protestant church is the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. So after his resurrection, Jesus was ascended to heaven. This is why um, if you ever say, you know, uh, language like, uh, where's Jesus? Jesus is right here. Or you ask Jesus into your heart. Now, I'm not going to correct somebody on that, but that's not technically true. Where is Jesus right now? Jesus is up in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on behalf of his people. His spirit is right here. You're inviting the Spirit of God into your life, into your heart. And those words can be interchangeable. 1 Corinthians 15, we can talk about that. But like, technically, that's where Jesus is. And what's, what, who cares? What does that matter for our sermon today? What's salient about that for today is that there is a human being that is male with male body parts in heaven. That's weird. But that's true. Third, we also see that in the New Testament over and over, the Holy Spirit goes by not it, but by he. Over and over, this, this is what we see. Um, so, so what's the point of this? Before the fall, before there's misogyny and sexist jokes and the battle of the sexes and men are from Mar Mars, women are from Venus, is that right? right? Before any of that, gender existed. Gender is part of something that God reveals that reveals something about what he wants to show us about God. And, and that tells us something, that gender is real. It's not just a sociological construct. It's not something that we just kind of made up over time, that this goes back to the very blueprints and design of the universe. Gender goes that deep. And so, if it's that important that God would even use this language for God, we have to understand why. Now, of course, there's all kinds of ways, and I just want to qualify this. There are all kinds of ways that gender is a sociological construct. So in our culture right now, you have a, a baby girl. What color balloons do you put out front? Pink. If you have a baby boy, what color balloons do you put out front? Blue. You know how long that's been a cultural practice? Since the 1950s. I mean, that is, I mean, pink for girls, blue for boys, that only goes back a few generations, and it goes back to American marketing in the 1950s. Hey, let's create industry so we can sell two, twice as many clothes and not have them all be the same color, right? Uh, what about this one? What about um, women stay home, men go outside the house? How long that, has that one been around, folks? Just since the Industrial Revolution, Right Before that, everybody worked on the farm all together all the time. Right? Everybody was at home and out in the fields. There was no distinction. So like, yes, there are sociological constructs around lots of things that we experience as gender in our culture, and yet that doesn't undo the fact that this exists in the early pages of Scripture and is defined like this is kind of the way God designed the universe. Um, so 
This is why I'm going to say over and over again that gender is part of the design code of the universe. And this is why you can go to ancient history museums in New York and D.C. and all over the world and find cultures widely divergent who never had any interaction with each other, and there's gender that's represented in their cultural practices. This is why when you learn a foreign language, a lot of times if you learn one that's not, you learn, if English is, is uh, you're not learning English as your foreign language, but you're learning another foreign language, you'll find that, that nouns have genders to them. And, you know, we think, well, English, that's the cultural winner right now. Like, that's the most highly evolved language in the world. No, it's not. If you've ever tried to learn English and, that's, and you're not coming as a native English speaker, this is the hardest language to, to, uh, to learn because it's such a bastard language. It's all put together with weird stuff. I mean, none of it makes sense. None of it's beautiful. None of it really matches up great. It's not super evolved. It's super messy. And the most evolved languages, you could argue, are the gendered ones that have such consistency, that flow over and over in all the same way. So, look, gender goes bone deep in the universe. So it, it, it is real. Um, second, it's not just biology. Now, I'm going to be really precise in this series to distinguish my language like carefully. I'm going to use the words uh, male and female to describe biological sex differentiation. I'm going to use masculine and feminine to to use for gender. And I know that that's not always how everybody uses that. I just want to be really careful. What we see in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, is creation of male and female. Now, gender is implied and implicit in, in chapter 1. It's, it's made explicit in, Gen, in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at next week. But I want to show you this, that... Um, Go back to God for a second. Let's talk about God. God uses gendered pronouns here to self-identify. And let's think about that. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, are we introduced to, a, to God who has a body? This is not a trick question. Come on, folks. Y'all are with me this morning? No, thank you. Right, right. No, you're not. Our confessional document says this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He doesn't have a body like us. That's what we're introduced to. So when God uses these pronouns, he's not talking about body parts. Now, that's obvious to a lot of folks, but that, that needs to be said. He's not saying something about his parts. He's not talking about sexual distinction. He's talking about something else that's real and yet is not body, bodily, not sex distinction. So here's the question. Should we keep it? Should we keep it? Um, what do we do with God's gendered language for himself? Um, in 1973, the feminist Mary Daly famously said, if God is male, then male is God. Have you heard that before? Uh, now, that's not the best logic. It's not always if A is B, then B is A. But you know exactly what she's talking about, and she has a good point. Because, and, and, and we should be, as Christians, the first people to speak against this, that many times the idea that God is expressed here in masculine pronouns has led to a lot of abuses in the church. And, and we, Christians should be the first people who stand up and raise a fist against sexism, misogyny, sexist jokes. Like, we should be the first people who are like uh, against discrimination. Right? Like, we should be like, no. 
Uh-uh. We'll come to that later because we're made in God's image. Um, and yet, this, this has led a lot of people, like Mary Daly's quote here, to jettison gendered language for God. And, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense like, hey, so this isn't about God's body part, so why do we need this? Especially since the sexual revolution, it's been this trend uh, to get rid of gendered language for God. If God's a spirit, if he doesn't have body parts, why should we use it? Um, so in many churches and institutions, first seminary I went to, I was taught all this stuff, you begin to change the language, okay? You can read gender-neutral translations of the Bible, the NRSV, the TNIV, the New Living Translation, and they just replace the word he in every place with God. So, and you replace himself with God's self. Um, or maybe you read The Shack, a uh, 2007 bestseller from uh, William Paul Young, when, in which he had, imagines God as a woman. What's the big deal? You know, what, sh- should we do that? Of course, all language for God, and let, let's put on our thinking caps. I'm going to make you think a lot in this sermon series, okay? All language for God, every bit of it is analogical. It is an analogy. Here's what I mean. Anytime you talk about God's attributes or God's character, God's personhood, you always have to add this little kind of qualifier in the sentence. Okay, so let me give you an example of this. God's good. God's good. It's like, but sort of unlike what we think of as good. It's so beyond what you can understand as good. But he's good, right? Or we we say um, God is... um, God is, is, uh, is strong, but that's sort of the most gigantic understatement I can make, right? Like, or um, God gets angry, but it's not like human anger. See, see, it's like but unlike. All language that we use for God is like but unlike. And does this mean we can't know anything or say anything about God? No, right? It doesn't mean we can't know anything or say anything, um, God picks out these human analogies to condescend to our point of view, you know, especially in the Scriptures, to tell us something about ourselves. So we, but it does mean we have to be careful to use the analogies in the way that God does, to follow Him and how we think about this and how we talk about this. So, for instance, and this is like last week's sermon, we say God is a father, but you have to be careful that you don't start with your dad as the reference point. Right? We say God is a father, but think first about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the one who sends his son. That's where we start, not with your dad. See, it's analogical. We have to say like, but not like. So here's the big deal about redemptive language for God. In an effort to avoid patriarchy, we could actually also end up missing something big. We can end up missing something big, removing something from how God reveals himself that actually really, really matters. And that is this, the personhood of God. And that may sound really weird, but here's here's what I mean by that. Um, Gender language for anything, uh, for, for God, using he captures this radical idea that God is a, exhibits himself, reveals himself as a person. Three persons. That, that, like, it's not the same thing to use the word it for God. <laughs> you use the word for it and you lose something of God's character and the way he reveals himself as personal, 
as a, a being that like relates to us in a very personal way, a, a God who thinks and loves and intervenes in the lives of people and hates things and loves things and has character to him and speaks into the lives of, of individuals. See, you, you, you take that, you turn that into an it, and what do you get? You get the force from Star Wars, right? This impersonal kind of like force that doesn't really do anything, that does, it's not, it's not moved. There's not a relationship. So this like, this may be uncomfortable, but like God using personal pronouns is really important to communicate his personhood. And of course, the inverse of that statement is even more true, right? Because we say like, God seems like a person in how he relates to us. The inverse of that's even more true. And it's what we find here in verse 26. That's because God makes people in his image, in his likeness. We're patterned off of him. The reason we think of God as so personal that's how he is, and he designs us to be. So when God, God contains, and I just want to say this really summary, okay? God contains all the attributes of masculine and feminine in his being. He does. And yet, for some reason, God uses masculine imagery over and over again. Father, king, he. Tell us about who he is. Um, C.S. Lewis has, has said this, and, and I don't know if this is helpful, but I'll throw this out there. He said, you know, one of the things that we need to understand is that God is, in some ways, so much that our, it's hard for us to understand this, but God, like, for example, is so very masculine in that way that all the universe, by definition, is feminine in response. That's why we're all the body, when we call the body of Christ, we call it the bride of Christ. Um, and there are those who would like to blur that emphasis, and I get why, but it's dangerous to tamper with the way God reveals himself. Like, we don't want to remove parts of God's character and remove essential elements, nor is it our place to do so. It's really important. It remains that he's father, not mother, and even in the incarnation, chose to come as a man, Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the main point. How is God's gendered language for himself like but not like ours? Like, but not like. Remember, again, God, of course, doesn't have a, a body. And it tells us something about what gender is. This tells us something really important about the nature of gender. Yes, it's creational. Yes, it's good. But it's not the same thing as sexual dis distinction or biology. How many of you guys work with computers or design in some form, yes, lots of our congregation. So, so you know this word platform, okay? Y'all use that word platform in ways that I never understood before, okay? But you say things like, hey, our company is coming out with this new platform that all these different applications will be built on, right? You familiar with this language? Please nod your head. I'm an English major. I'm very insecure about this point, <laughs> right? Okay, so you understand this. See, gender is built on the platform of biology but it's not the same thing. This is what we learn from this distinction. And that may seem like, ah, really, that's, that's all you have for me? No, no, that's a big deal. That gender is built on the platform of biology, but is not entirely the same thing as it. See, uh, biology, genes, chromosomes, DNA, are what determine sex differentiation Gender is another thing that's built on that. It is an added gift from the Lord God. 
It's an added gift that helps reveal parts of his character and helps define parts of our character in response to him. Um, So let's summarize. Let me summarize, just make sure we're all in the same place right now. Uh, is, is gender real? Yes. Yes. Gender is a real thing. It's not just a sociological con- construct. It, it's part of the design plans of the universe. And it goes very, very deep. So much so that God would reveal himself using that language to condescend, to help us to understand that this matters. That matters. It's also not the same thing as biology. This is why God can use gendered language to describe himself, even though he has no biology attached to it, and yet he gives us biology and builds gender on top of it. And those things are related, and there's overlap, but they're not the same thing. In other words, I'm going to say this, and this may jar, but I want just to lay this out there. You are masculine or feminine to your very soul. Not just with your parts, but to your very soul. So finally, third part, and this is the part I've been, this is where we've been getting to, this is where I'm running to, Hang in with me if you're like, I'm already checking out. Don't check out. Come back. Come back. So look, um, gender is important, but it's not the most important. Man, that is obvious if you read Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? But let me, let me point this out. Even as God um, reveals part of who he is and what he makes, there's something bigger than he, she. There's something much bigger than he, she, and it's just whispered at. It's just hinted at in this passage, and it's beautiful and mysterious and compelling. And I just want to, I just want to point this out. Gender is not the main point of, of Genesis 1. Even as God reveals language that's personal and masculine pronouns, he, he, he sort of goes into something else. Look at verses 26 and 27. First chapter of the Bible, then, God says, let us make man in our own image. See, the most important thing we learn about gender from Genesis 1 is not he or she, it's we. It's we. Gender is designed for relationship. I'm going to hit this one hard over and over again. Gender is designed for relationship. Let's think briefly about the inner relationships of the Trinity. And this is high altitude climbing. You may need a little oxygen for this. We don't usually go here, okay? Um, But there is a word called perichoresis that theologians use. You don't need to know the word, but here's what it means. It means that the inner, in the inner relationships of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is such mutual enjoyment, mutual savoring and delight and promotion that are part of the inner workings of the relationships between the Trinity that we can scarcely get our brains around it. God just delights in being themselves together. God delights in this in such a profound way. This is, and if you go through and you like mine through all the passages in the Bible that describe like the inner workings of how the Father relates to the Son, how the, the Father relates to the Spirit. Let, let, let me give you a summary of what this will look like. And I'm going to use some weird language. I'm going to use first, second, third. Okay? First, God the Father. Second, Jesus the Son. Third, the Holy Spirit. So let me just describe this. The first delights in the second. The second honors and submits to the will of the first. The, the third just casts light, the spotlight on the second. The third proceeds from the first and the second. The third rests on the second. The second only does what he sees the first doing. The first delights daily in the second, and the second rejoices even to be in the presence of the first. The second desires to leave the world in order to be with the first. The third applies the work of the second to the lives of believers. Um, 
This is what God experiences in him, within himself, within themselves, themselves. Right? We stumble over all this language. Mutual delight of an order that we can barely, barely fathom. And this will take your breath away. If you, if you allow this to get in, um, this is more exhilarating. See, gender, differentiation, personhood, and unity, it's for relationships. This is where we're going to come back over and over again. And sometimes people say it this way, God's not a he, but a we. And that's, um, that's not exactly true, biblically. Uh, the unity and mutuality of the Trinity doesn't ever diminish the he or the he or the he, and yet there's something even greater in the we. And so it's, it's not that God's not a he, but a we. God is a he, but even way more so a we. And this is important for us because it shows us something that we don't experience very often, and you surely don't hear it right now, that differences and distinctions don't necessarily have to diminish people. Differences, differences and distinctions can enrich. Differences and distinctions don't have to subjugate or manipulate or put people in their place. They don't have to be battles. D differences don't have to be flattened out. Differences are for intimacy. See, here's what's missing from this view, this like high God-sized view of who God reveals themselves, himself, themselves to be, is that gender is for relationships. Right now, if you listen really closely to what is coming through the airwaves, coming through uh, all the talking heads right now, you would think gender is for me. Gender is for me and my self-expression. Gender is for me and what I want. Gender is for me and my desires. Gender is for me. And see, this is what we're missing. God never intends selfishness to be on the throne of the universe. God always intends mutuality, unity, other-centered self-emptying. That's what God's about for his people. That's what we see in in his very relationships. See, in Scripture, we meet, a, we meet a God who is not just he, but we. And it's not about me, me, me. It's about we, we, we. It's about us together. Now, look, I know that gender is one of, like, a Christmas present. I said, hey, gender's a gift that God adds on biology. And you're like, yeah, right. Uh, you know, as a, as a culture, to hear somebody say that is ridiculous. As a culture, we're like, if gender is a gift, it's like one I didn't want for Christmas, and I'd like to return, thanks very much. That's, what, that's what's going on right now. And, and if, that's, um, if that's you today, and if you feel missed by the sermon, um, I have one last thought for you, and it's really simple. It's just really, really simple. Um, I think at root in a lot of the gender discussions that are going on in our culture, um, below the the surface, deep below the surface, is a deep longing, is it a deep, you know, desire to know I'm okay and I'm wanted and I'm not a weirdo and somebody will accept me. I think so much of gender dysphoria that 
I've experienced in my life, and you've probably experienced in your life, maybe you are right now, comes from this place of fear of like, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be unloved, I'm going to be under, not understood, I'm going to be unwanted. And, and I, I can understand that. Um, you know, maybe, you're, maybe it's as simple as like, you're a guy who doesn't care about cars or football. You know, you're a woman who doesn't like shopping or cooking things or whatever, the, you know, the, all the like stupid gender stereotypes in our culture right now. I, and maybe it's, it's just that level. Or maybe it's a full-blown, like, I deeply feel disconnected from what's printed on my birth certificate, and I want to know what to do about it. And I, I understand, I just want to name as significant those fears and those feelings. But I, I want to point you beyond this, and I'm not trying to be simplistic, and I'm not trying to be glib, and I'm not trying to put a Jesus Band-Aid over a gaping wound. But what you long for is what we see in the Trinity, See, what we, what's drawn for us in the Trinity is not a closed circle, but an open one. And this is profound. This is profound beyond a level I think we can even understand. That the God of the universe, as much as they delight in each other, as much as there's so much mutual enjoyment, was not just absolutely satisfied in that, but instead desired to create human beings male and female, masculine and feminine, in his own image, to invite in, to welcome, to say, you, you are wanted. You, you're not weird. You, you matter. Come in. Come in. Can you hear the invitation of this? I know this is hard material, but this, this stuff if we'll listen carefully, it's not a hand to our face. It's a welcoming. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.